Shabbos Kodesh, a gitter boch in a gitter Kodesh. Wichtig is a glattes Hure, wichtig is a blattgemure. Was is wichtig, in was is nicht, mit Tour nicht, werden's nicht. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Radiant Others Klezmer Music Podcast. This is Bela Unger filling in for Dan, who's taking a break for some very exciting personal reasons. Today on the podcast, you'll hear Dan speaking with Ira Hanan Temple. Ira is a multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and embedded cultural organizer. Recent credits include accordionist for Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish and music director of Indecent at the Weston Playhouse, Great Small Works, Muntergang, and Other Cheerful Downfalls, Afzalachis Spectacle Committee Pormspiel, and Zoe Beloff's Days of the Commune. Ira is a founder of the radical traditional Yiddish music group Tzibola. I am so excited for you all to hear this conversation. Dan and Ira get into some really interesting topics around the culture of the Yiddish music world and how we relate to each other. As you'll hear, Ira is super thoughtful and I hope that you enjoy listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider becoming a regular contributor to our Patreon so we can continue to release new conversations regularly. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, without further ado, here is Dan Blacksburg and Ira Hunan Temple. All right, Ira Temple, welcome to the Radiant Others podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Right? <laughs> Long time listener, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Were you, uh, you're, you're going like, when is he going to make another one? It's like 2021. And you're like, what is he bump? What is he up to? He's not doing anything. I hadn't figured out how to, I could just do this all remotely yet. So yeah, I was thinking about how do you even organize talking to your friends on one of these things? And so yeah, what's, what have you been up to? You've been bopping around. You've had some new projects. You were in Paris. Did I see that? Yeah, I was in Paris last week. Yeah, what is what am I up to now? I feel like, yeah, I suddenly have a big summer where a bunch of my different projects are all happening at the same time, which is exciting and confusing. But in reverse chronological order, I guess I'm I'm gonna go to Krakow for the first time this summer with this great theater project, and I was just in Paris with the project that I music directed for Laura Elkeslasi called Yahurbati. That's like her family's history through song. It's kind of a like pan North African Jewish diasporic show. And I am finishing up writing a round of my own material that I've started to perform around that sort of solo material that I also performed recently with, with a small band. And yeah, I feel super excited about all that. That's awesome, right? Yeah, you just had that concert in Maryland that I think was some of this material, right? 
oh yeah, there's this huge show up at the Jewish Museum of Maryland, and I was in a show that's part of a cohort of people who received this New Jewish Culture Fellowship, and that was interesting. That was like an interesting generational moment to see people who are, I feel like, are in my Jewish age and political cohort kind of like taking over a museum. Mm. I mean, maybe I shouldn't use the language of taking over, you know, like eh. why shouldn't why shouldn't we have museums? But it just feels it feels like a big shift to have just Jewish institutional space and not have to asterisk it, be like left Jewish institutional space or be like queer Jewish institutional space. But just to have like Jewish institutional space and feel like I can do a show there. Yeah, you can. Yeah, so this is great. I mean, the thing I'm grabbing onto in my head a little bit is when you said sort of your generation and your cohort in Jewish music and uh, political activism. And I was sort of thinking about my age. I'm turning 40 this year in terms of music, you know, and it's also a lot of things that have been happening to me, like 20 years playing klezmer. And, and then some of the teaching I've done in Philadelphia just really had to come to terms with, I guess, being like a mid-career artist is one of the uh, shorthands for it. But like, yeah, for you, what what are some characteristics that you feel or some th- things that maybe even feel put upon you about your particular cohort, either mm. klezmerly or politically or, or your, you know, otherwise Jewishly in this case? Oh, Dan, that's such a huge question. Of course it is. I mean, and it's also like, you know, a question I have is like, are you and I in different cohorts? Like in some ways, that's like, a you great know, question. We're, we're not that far. We're like, we I'm really three years younger. I'm three years younger than you, but yeah. because I like was not a klezmer kid and because I feel like I came both to music and to klezmer a little later in life, maybe. And I know that you, I know that you have this thing where you got edited into, you got like edited into the scene. As oh yeah, I got retconned into as a, people were like, you were here when you were 14. No, I wasn't. I was 18. Now I'm right. still young. And the thing was that I was playing the big gigs four years later. So it is what it yeah. is. Yeah. So there is, even though our ages are really close, you're right. We have these different trajectories that I think affect this, the answer to this question. We have these different trajectories and, you know, it's like, I didn't, I also feel like, I mean, people have different opinions on this, but I think that like taking testosterone helped me appear in public to be an adult um, because it like made me look like, like I wasn't a child anymore. And that has an effect on how I'm perceived in all these different ways Mm. um, and how I perceive myself, like, like imagining a future for myself and imagining what I will age into. So I just think that there's a way that like there's queer age in a way that it complicates that. And also I think that my work, my work coming into the klezmer scene had a lot to do with like being like, Oh, despite my gender, I feel like I can have, I can make a place here. So I feel like, like I spent a lot of time, creating my own version and I have other people around me who created that version with me or we were all creating it with each other and the timeline felt a little different than people who who found success in in earlier ways absolutely I mean I remember two things first of all you're absolutely right I was dragged into the and that was what I wanted I want it was like the undertow of what had been happening previously. So working with people like Frank London, I remember my first time, second year of Klez Camp, there was this big Brass All-Stars gig 
And Frank was like, oh, Dan, do you want to sit in? It was it was the perfect kind of gig. It was around New Year's after Klez Camp. The, the Hamish vibes were high. And I, two, three years of being into this music, was suddenly on stage playing with all the people who I wanted to play with and, like, crossed off, like, a bucket list thing, like, that early. It's confusing. And it's, it has its own set of confusions and things that you ever work at, especially when you're a trombone player, which means you're being pulled in in a supportive role as opposed to a leadership role and th- but that's my story but I do think it reminds me of this very and I can't remember exactly where this happened but it must have been one of these klezmer programs where where I was like oh you should talk to this person and this person you're like no we're gonna do this our own way we're gonna do this on our own without anybody's help we have to do it this way and I was like all right yeah hell yeah yeah you know? and I remember you telling I remember you talk, coming back to me with that story years later and being like you know what you were right. And I was like, thanks. Yeah, no, it's true. Thanks, Dan. But, like, in retrospect, like, I, I'm like, wow, who was that? Who was, now, I guess when I say my cohort, like, and I think about my aging process, I'm like, who was I then to have such certainty, you know? And I'm, like, kind of impressed mm. with my, like, young, brash self. But, you know, I, I was definitely brought into the Klezmer and Yiddish world by Jenny Romaine. Like, that's the yeah, yeah, origin yeah. of, that's, that's, like, why I'm here. And... Like, that's my version of being pulled up on stage with Frank London. Like, mm-hmm. I showed up to hold a pole at Purim, and Jenny was like, you, you're going to be one half of the king, because obviously the king was voiced by two different people speaking their lines at the same time. And I was like, it was really clear to me, like, oh, you're in, you know? And nobody had ever done that to me before, just based on, like, how I looked or how I presented or how I showed up. But I don't know, to be to feel so pulled in and so included just, like, pulled me into, like, 10 years of working with Jenny in a really intensive way. Yeah. And just like intensive, like just like studying everything that she did and like participating with her and making all kinds of stuff with her. And that experience and then some other experiences that I had that were, I would say, like had some protective walls around them in terms of being like very explicit about making space for women and making space for queer people. Mm. And by doing that, sort of like excluding men, excluding cis men from creating the music or theater to make like a a very particular space just like showed me a way of working where maybe certain things were harder than they would be like with working with men who like already had certain production skills or arrangement skills or, or whatever. But, but that the emotional dynamics felt like easier in terms of that everybody had to step up and figure out how to do those things. And there wasn't like just all of the complicated actual or assumed or imagined hierarchies based on gender that exist in all of those spaces. And being in those spaces made me for a while just be like, I'm not accepting any of the terms of any of these. It's funny that you said about who were you back then that you were so brash because I, I immediately jumped to Jenny as someone who I know that, you know, is a big part of your artistic life and someone who, you know, has, I would say an incredibly large impact on me considering I haven't had nearly as much direct work with her, although enough to really have some of that mutation take place. But that a mentor or a gate opener like her is somebody who is going to not only give you a lot of information and opportunity, but also going to encourage you to do things your own way. You know, I actually think that's what my teachers in college used to say. That's what we want for all of you. But then there's just a different sense of pressure or like you said, real or imagined or assumed, which is maybe somewhere in between 
hierarchies, especially on the New York professional music scene, where, in my perception as a non-living in New York person, there are a lot of those. Yeah. I mean, in the New York professional scene and filtered through the water, like from my high school jazz band experiences, just like gendered expectations that are so deeply ingrained that just to be a woman in professional music spaces is suspect. And like, that's really deep to have to move past. And not just that your existence is sort of suspect, but that also that like all of the interstitial things around the music production like have a kind of bro hangout affect and that you have to be able to participate in that affect. And nobody's like enforcing that. It's not on the rules. It just is. And so it also takes like a lot of consciousness to understand why why that's even a problem or like what could be done about it or to imagine a space where that wasn't the case. When Sybilla got together as a band, we had a lot of rehearsal time, and a lot of the rehearsal time was just talking about our experiences. Like, if we were in the 70s, we would just call it consciousness raising. It was just like, and then this happened, and then everybody was like, yeah. Like, just, mm-hmm. just like a lot. But, you know, that took, that took a lot of space. <laughs> that took a lot of space and time. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have to build a different default. I think the yeah. thing that you're saying is that all of this broiness is for whatever reasons, for all of the reasons, not whatever reasons, for like a million reasons, most of which are not that great. And I think mostly come from, uh, you know, at least in certain professional music, there's just so much scarcity is that there's this snap. It's like a snap judgment, but it's like a snap, every kind of action. And then, and then you're left with this default thing that we're modeled as younger people. I mean, I spent so much time saying, like, I don't want to be anything like these people. I mean, God, I remember the early jazz jam sessions I went to and just how mean everybody was, this idea of tough love. And I'm like, is it love? You know? um, And it's like I remember running into my band director well after I graduated high school, and he was unrepentant. 100% unrepentant about how harsh he was, you know, and, and, and they tie it into this notion of quality and it's just, it's just disaster, but it's also very automatic because we've all been swimming in that soup, right? And so you're saying consciousness, it sounds to me like you're building a new baseline, which takes a ton of work because you first have to like start building it. And then hopefully it grows to the point that you can actually replace the one that's in your heads with this new thing. It's really hard. I mean, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Like, I, I appreciate that and I appreciate talking about that because I have to say it makes me feel very slow because in my work, like, like, listen, I like to write a song and I like to perform a song, but that's like the visible facade of the work. <laughs> it's like, and there's so much of the work that's about development of the personnel that you want to be working with and development of yourself as the version of yourself that you want to be working with. And I feel very slow at that. And, you know, the fast, the fast version of hiring is to like to hire the dude who already has tons and tons of skills. Yes. And the fast version of communication is to like slip over the interesting conversation and yeah. And you know, Sometimes it's great to hire the dude who already has all the skills. And 
Sometimes you have to because you got to get the job done the next three hours. Yeah. And also, you know, skills are really great and skills have their own beauty that communicates and transmits. But it's it is interesting. Like I, I think about how just developing a sense of artistry or certainly a sense of, you know, musicality, whether it's on an instrument or with your voice or through interpretation of lyrics, you have to automate so much of your behavior. Like practice is about creating mental pathways of automation. You're taking, let's say, a phrase or maybe a single note of a song, and then you're ensconcing that into the phrase, and then you're ensconcing that into the section, and then ensconcing that into the song. And eventually you do it enough times that your brain doesn't have to pay attention to all the little details. But it's like that with everything else, too. It's like that with the way you think about yourself during the day. It's the way that you carry yourself on stage. And so, in a way, we have to automate this so much stuff. And when you don't automate with intention, you get a combination of the mainstream societal default and you get a combination of whatever version of your idea of success you're able to sort of casually achieve. And that's how I feel about my life. And I, I can relate to the slowness because I've definitely felt that very often. So welcome to the club. Let's be the slow club. I want to change the way I wear my shoes. I want to chew the ground beneath my feet and find my place on any street. I want to tremble with the real of it. I want to change the way I wear my shoes. And I want to change the way I wear my hair. Find newly stationed follicles and new fields in which to frolic. I'll eat just seeds. I'll be the grass. I'll make a molehill of my ass. And maybe then I'll really pass. I want to change the way I wear my hair. No, I think that's really beautiful. It's like a big thing that I think about in my practice is like, I'm just always thinking about how not to build tension into my practice, right? So like this year I started, when I brush my teeth sometimes, I'll be like, how can I brush my teeth with the least t tension? Just like have another place where I'm just like practicing like fast movement, no no tension, you know? But, and it, you know, it's fun, but it's really hard and really frustrating because tension is so productive. <laughs> yeah, fight or flight is, I mean, it comes from fight or flight, I think. And adrenaline, it's what saves, your brain says you need this to save your life. And, and, and you can, you know, human beings are just so good at going, oh, resources are scarce. So then I should have a fight or flight response to, uh, this email about, yeah. you know, something or other. Right. So you're like, what if in addition to like our, our practice habits, we developed habits of mind about our community and about the way that we approach creating music and culture? Uh, there's this Jewish person April Baskin, who has a podcast, I think it's now called Joyous Justice. I've gotten a lot from that podcast. And she she says, hey, this is my evolution of practice makes perfect, which is, is bullshit. And so practice makes perfect. Screw that. Uh, I thought of this as well as heard it from this musician, Henry Threadgill. Practice makes permanent. And that's okay. And what April said was, wherever you put your attention will grow. Yeah, that's right. Let's talk about putting our attention on Jewish 
musical and especially Yiddish musical literacy? Because you want to talk about something that takes a long time or seems to take a long time. Yeah. I mean, 20 years for me, and now I feel like I can really take ownership of this stuff in a way that I couldn't before. And it's so interesting. Like, I've just watched this over and over again. There are exceptions, but for the most part, figuring out how to be one of the people who can kind of play this music at a level that I don't even know how to describe it. But play this music the way I like to hear it just takes a really long time. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because diaspora is not a joke. You know, it, it's it's sort of like how our options for learning Yiddish are somewhat more limited than our options for learning French. And there are a few living bands that are playing this music in ways that we love, but there's not infinite and it's not just, it's not around us in every moment. Even the ones of us who play it kind of at every moment. I think the immersion takes more years because it's it's always a little incomplete. And there's something beautiful about that, but, you know, I think it's like a pretty constant line of grief through the process of creating this music Mm, yeah yeah and confusion so what are some highlights of your you know jewish music literacy gaining process you know when, when when you think about that are there like specific events or concerts or educational resources or people that just like immediately pop into your mind or Sure. I mean, it's nice to reflect on that and realize, wow, I'm still so excited and so grateful for every one of those things. So grateful. I guess I would say, you know, I, want, I have one version of a story that a lot of people have, which is that I grew up in like a conservative synagogue with a really nice cantor who played the guitar and music that I wasn't interested in, although I really liked reading Torah and the trope and all that stuff. When I was a teenager... Zoe Aqua's father, Hal Aqua, um, learned that the Klezmatics were coming to town and took me, took me, because um, Zoe Aqua and I's parents are really close friends, and their family took me along, which is really sweet. I think my parents wouldn't have known to do that, um, but we would like oh, yeah. sometimes go over there for Shabbat, and Hal like would have like maracas and xylophones, or I don't, I don't know, just all kinds of instruments, and we would have a very musical Shabbat together and I think that was really important and but sort of subterranean I also credit Daniel Pinkwater as a subterranean Yiddish influence in my life I don't know if you've read Borgel his like kids novel about his like weird clearly coded Eastern European grandfather named mm-hmm. Borgel mm-hmm There's some just, like, influences that I didn't know how to read until I was older. Oh, sure. then when I was in college and I was starting to play accordion instead of piano because I wanted to be in this, like, movable theater piece, I, like, heard Jeff Warshower give a talk about cantorial music and its relationship to, like, secular, secular Jewish traditions and something about that really validated this idea of Jewish secular music that was really compelling to me, in part because I was like getting a degree in Middle Eastern history at Columbia, where the focus was really on, I don't know, critiquing the idea of secular nationalism. That's, 
That's like what my bachelor's no, is No, no, this is yeah. that's great. <laughs> no, I just, I, I, all I can say is I just, I think it's remarkable how much all of this tracks for me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that, that, yeah, I could see how you'd get here from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little journey. No, okay. Let's just stay on that part of like secular Jewish music because I know for me the importance of that didn't really emerge till later, but there was something so compelling about it even before I sort of assigned any kind of value to it for myself, for my own identity. But like, you know, I'll say that for me, I had a very similar Jewish upbringing synagogue wise. I was really into, you know, prayers and learning the prayers and I was really into the trope and I loved the melodies of it. And I mean, I was so happy when I was a senior in high school and our the rabbi of my childhood retired and they got this new reconstructionist rabbi who had this whole thing about like, you don't have to believe in it. There's just value in just doing it. And I was like, oh, it's so great because I really don't want to believe in it. I just really didn't want to believe in any of this. You know, <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just like, I'm just like, that's just where I was at. You know, I don't know. I was taking my first philosophy class, you know, stuff like that. When I was 16, we went to the we went to our birthright light graduation trip from staying in Hebrew school from year eight to year 16 or whatever it was like Sunday school, Monday school, Tuesday and Thursday, Hebrew school, uh, and then Hebrew high school. And you make it all the way through, you go on an Israel trip. In this case, it was with a bunch of synagogues from the suburbs. And that has like a whole thing. Cause I grew up in Philly and it was like sort of us versus the suburbs. At least that's how I felt. And then as soon as I got back from that, I went into this like radical phase of norm, like my most normal years and um, like a lot of really normal things happened in that in that end of my high school years, except that music got weird. That was the place where all the weirdness went. And, uh, you know, I started playing avant-garde stuff and I started playing klezmer music. And then it's so funny that it just like I just was like had this like I was into it. I was into the Ruach, man, I was into it. And then I got back from that thing. It was like, what the hell? Never mind. It was like immediately. It was like, never mind. And then I remember Pete Sokolow's ensemble in Klez Camp 2002. And it was like somehow it was, it was like, this is the combination of all the things that I'm good at and that people are validating me for and feels like it connects to my own experience. Wow. But how did you get to Klez Camp? Oh, that's really simple. My parents bought a CD, Cosmatic CD, when the Itzhak Perlman tour played at the Mann Center in Philadelphia. It sat on the shelf for a number of years. I got really into it, started playing those tunes with my dad, and then at, separately ended up going to New England Conservatory through some other avenues and thought, I'm a klezmer guy. I'm going to be so klezmer. It's all going to be klezmer and free jazz and improvised music. But klezmer, I'm going to really do a klezmer thing. And then the first day I got to New England Conservatory, there was a concert at night where Michael Winograd and his conservatory klezmer played. And I realized that I knew absolutely nothing about anything. And I went up to him and was like, what do I do to learn this music? And he's like, you got to go to klez camp. And so I went to klez camp that winter. Holy that was shit. It. I've never heard that yeah. story. Oh, good. Yeah, it was very sudden. I went from full confidence to zero confidence in the course of a song or two. <laughs> wow. 
I mean, that's so interesting also in light of just the conversation we were having earlier about like, what is a cohort and how did you, how do you think about your own stuff? Because like, you know, in retrospect, okay, so my like getting pulled into the scene now seems sort of inevitable based on where it came from, but like it wasn't from like, where will I make my musical mark? Like it was really a community spaces vibe. Like I was in New York, I was in the Rude Mechanical Orchestra, you know, like the anarchist green marching band that was a splinter of the Hungry March Band, where the Hungry March Band was like, we want to like keep being a good band and also play parties and gigs and stuff. And the RMO was like, no, we just, we want to like play parties, but fundamentally like political actions and we want to be more open to membership who can't play as well. So I was like in the like really community splinter of the Hungry March Band and kind of knew Jenny and kind of knew the people in Veverice who were associated with Golden Fest. And I just got like, in retrospect, now looking at it, I was just like being pulled closer and closer and closer and eventually ended up at Clez Canada. And then from Clez Canada, I was like, ah, okay, like the world has a center and it's still wild mm. to me how powerful these camps are as like an object lesson that there can be a center, that there isn't just like various people's weird interests, underground, subterranean, marinating, but that you can just hold a camp for a week, once a year, and it makes this claim about identity and like and about genre and about like a world. It's wild. You know, props to someone like Henry Sapoznik and also, of course, Adrian Cooper for setting the model with that, with Clez Camp, and just saying, we're going to have all of it all at once. You know, there's um, a lot of traditions, I think, that organize their folk camp, music camps, around really, really specific threads. And so to be like, fiddle camp. I mean, a lot of folk musics don't have to actually bring at least American or North American folk musics don't often have to bring as many different kinds of instruments together as we do. Mm -hmm. But it's like, we'll do one strain and it's like a weekend only focusing on this one thing. And then Klezmer really has almost never been about that. It's always instrumental music, Hasidic Nagunim, cantorial music, Yiddish folk song, Yiddish theater, language, visual art, cooking if we can find a space for it. Always, all at once and every single time. And like, Tons of lectures. You know, it's just, it's such a model that was set up and that has been continued that I think really brilliantly pushes back on that sense of, like, confusion. It's just sort of like, oh, no, we have all of it. We have, you know, people, a lot of Jews go around going, like, where, what do we have? What do we have? And then we're just like, we have all of it, all of it. It's right here. We're just going to put all of it in one week at this big, like, just piled on top of each other. There's going to be more than you can ever handle. I always say to new people at these places, you are supposed to be an overfilled sponge. Don't even try. They're like, I can't process it. I'm like, don't even try. This is about immersion. It's about, it's a, you know, you'll process it for the rest of the year. Right. No, I, that brings us back to what, what you were talking about earlier about the length of time it takes to like become conversant in the musical idioms. And I was like, yeah, it's about it's about immersion. And it's like, for a minute, you get the experience of immersion. And immersion, immersion isn't about taking a class. Immersion isn't about learning one scale. Immersion is about being in a world. And I think for me, you know, all of my grandparents are World War II refugees. And, mm. like, 
some ways I feel sometimes like a little funny in the in the Yiddish world because only one of my grandmother's grandparents were Yiddish speakers. Like you have to go mm-hmm. further back than that in all of the rest of my European family. Like the rest of my family fully assimilated in Europe to like a sort of like European identity. Yeah. Well, it just, I'll say like to, maybe it's a little bit of a transition to think about how that immersion, participating in this sort of raw immersion where there's not really a lot of ideology behind it. It's more about inclusivity to the point that maybe some people can't even tell the difference between some of these forms. I mean, just the fact that the word klezmer has come to mean so (laughs) many different things. Yeah, I was just talking about how today, actually, it seems like there are more threads that are available than ever before. People conflate and confuse all this Ashkenazi culture, all of our, our, our cultural heritage, our history, whether they're confusing it and saying, this is all one thing, or they're confusing it and saying, I heard somewhere someone said, well, you know, if we were, if the people were less assimilated, they'd be more... Uh, observant of white supremacy i was like that's not that's just a lie it's a blatantly historical error you know it's like and i think one of the things that the literacy gives you is this like the thing that takes time is for you to feel get enough information enough skills enough technique enough you know connections between people where you start to say i don't have to wonder who i am inside of this culture and then that puts you in a really interesting place vis-a-vis, you know, American Judaism in general, especially even a lot of the communities, especially the progressive communities that we find ourselves in all the time. Oh, man, I remember, I'm just, something about the way we're having this conversation is really bringing me back to my Hebrew school experiences. I don't know why that is, but... Okay. And there's another piece of the story that we didn't touch on yet, which is that I spent 10 years as a a teacher at the worker circle, and... Mm. I got to say, like, Kolya Berardulin is, like, a huge influence for me in getting into this music. Even though, not a musician, but just, like, Kolya is a, an absolutely zealous onboarder. Kolya has, like, a missionary fire. Can we say this? I don't know. I would say... Oh, we could say way more than that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could say whatever. Kolya is so fired up to bring people into this culture. And he's such an amazing teacher, and he's such, like, a beautiful clown as a teacher. Like, he's such a beautiful performer and so emotional and so present. And Mm. he is so mission-driven. Because, you know, for me, I never got to experience Adrian as a leader within the worker circle, except Mm. through memory and through the materials and through conversations with other people about her, what she had done there. You can talk to Kolya about how important she was to him and what they did together. But this this idea of world building and civilization, like creating the ability to have immersive identity and culture, Kolya really really showed me that. And that really influenced my teaching. And then, you know, his story is basically there was an opportunity for him to become a Yiddish teacher in Barobijan because of a quota system that they needed somebody. And Jewish identity is so politicized in Barobijan because it's supposed to be a Jewish place, but it really is. It really doesn't do the thing about advancing Jewish and Yiddish culture that 
Stalin said it was going to, but because of the sort of formal expectation that it does, there are expectations for people to learn and become a Yiddish teacher, and that's how Kolya became a Yiddish teacher. And he said, listen, you just have to learn one step ahead of your students. That was so inspirational for me to hear, especially in the context of this culture. It meant that I could, all this, this, this culture that felt like I didn't know how to have access to it. it was clear that it was very rich, but it was also clear that you know my own ancestors had assimilated away from it, and that it, it wasn't mainstream in the Jewish institutions that I had grown up in. Kolya was there to just be like, no problem. And in fact, by teaching it, you can learn it. And that let me learn so much as a teacher over ten years. Yeah, no, I think what's incredible about that is two things. One is it really empowers you to get growing, right? You're like, I don't need to be this acknowledged master of 40 years before I can start. But then the other side of it, which is something that I feel like has been really important for me, is I can try to lead from a teaching perspective people who are close to my level, like Mm -hmm. people who are like, you know, not so far away. You know, when when we grow up, there's leagues between you and your teacher. Mostly it's age, you know, but it's like, you know, it's like, you teach, if you teach like 10 year olds and you're 40 or something, like it's, you know, there's a gulf there. But, you know, one of the flip sides of that is all you need to do is stay one step ahead. You can be almost right there with your people. Yes. And you can also treat them that way. You can treat which them Which I like think is very different. We're all learning. And especially the mm-hmm. Shula is such a multi generational space. And I led, you know, years of morning meetings, these spaces where, like parents and children were there together and often the par- mm-hmm. parents of the children would bring in their parents because this was a place like a big family connecting place. So we would frequently have three generations. Um, and we, you're not, I mean, what is a teacher? You're not, you're not like an instructor, you're a community facilitator. So you're bringing together people's knowledges and then you're making all the knowledges make sense in the same space. And you're doing that through like talking about a subject matter, having a theme relating to a Jewish holiday, doing some dancing, eating something together. Again, it's the, it's the combination of everything that we're talking about. And you're saying and at, at any level people can participate in this. And it's really easy to I think going back to this idea of like defaulting to the default, it's really easy to mistake this for being a manager. You know, I think there's aspects of it and there's certainly managerial skills that you really need to be a good teacher or certainly to run parts of a Yiddish program or even to just be a band leader. But I think that there's a way, something that I'm so grateful for all of our people and all of our our, the people who build our community or sort of set the, the, the foundational values is that somehow we're always reaching for something greater than that. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I, to me, manager isn't such a bad word. I mean, in the sort of hierarchical, like, I'm not like you sense, right? Yeah, but what if you think, what if you think about it in the sense of like, well, I wouldn't use the word manager, but I would say... That's right. I would say somebody, somebody who is interested in creating comrades, somebody who's interested in, in human development. I mean, that's a gross yes. managerial term, but somebody no, who's but interested it's... in the development of the community around us. In some yes. ways, like, I did like that about synagogue growing up. You know, it's like... Yeah, that's right. Life, there's life cycle there, and there's this idea, like, what kind of person do you want to be? I mean, that's bringing up a whole other kettle of fish. But, like, say we're not, like, say we're not having a conversation about ethics, or, but we're having a conversation about, like, how we are together. 
which is not necessarily not about ethics, but no, but you, but it's like there's this sense of like, well, you should belong to us. Like you, we should be connected in some way that's meaningful. Yeah, right. And and, and <laughs> you and I have talked about this so many times, but there for people who are new audiences to Yiddish music, yeah, there's like a process that a lot of them have to go through that's like kind of kind of dark, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How so? I remember when I played my parents' that Sybil album for the first time, and my dad said, "This is so sad." And oh, okay. You know, I said, "Oh yeah, I know a lot of the songs are really intense." Like you know, a lot of people responded to that album by being like, "This is too dark." <laughs> you know, I you you really did set it up that way. I just want people should have known what they were getting into. Yeah, you know, it, like the album art was dark. Everything was it was it's like it was kind of dark outside. Yeah, yeah. But exactly. Were like, These themes are very intense, and we were like, "Yes, we have very intense feelings, and we want to talk about intense subjects." You know, it's like okay. But Duh. my dad was like, "I was like, yeah, it's intense," and I was like, "Yeah, anything in particular you're thinking of?" And he was like. It's just so sad what happened to Yiddish. Mm. And I don't know. That was like a formative conversation for me because I do think that happens to a lot of people at these shows. It's like you're trying to talk about subject matter and people are like having this experience with cultural loss. And that's hard. (laughs) It is really hard. (laughs) There's one thing that I think a lot of Ashkenazi Jews are really good at and our artwork so far has been become good at and sometimes this fails and crashes and burns but we kind of take everything head on whether we should or not or whether it's healthy or not it's just like you just take take misery head on you know yeah and you know i mean this this goes back to this thing i always get really frustrated when people talk about it's like oh but i shouldn't complain i'm like no <laughs> complain you know, I have no complaints. It's like, why not? You know, and that's what Yiddish is so good for. You so know, good. Why am I thirsty? You know. So like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I mean, there's that, but there's also like, you know, you could sing a wedding song, and people, people who weren't oh, acclimated, it happens so could time, have, could so have, often. could have that relationship, and I think. Like that's the that's the joy of this thing, this phenomenon that we're talking about about these cultural institutions privileging just experience in the culture, yeah. because to so many people Yiddish just is the Holocaust and that's and that's yes. it, and that's just still true. It's still true. It's like historical these historical narratives that are maybe deployed as the best somebody could come up with at the time, but then turn into this thing that's useful for somebody or another. They just, they just, they just kind of are on their own tracks, no matter how much more actual information we somehow seem to unearth. Yeah. But I don't know, in some ways, like that's like, that's also a fun challenge. It's like, and that's where I, what I'm interested in. I feel like I'm just starting to be able to work within the forms that I've learned to have my own experience and opinions and that's that's new but that's just being like you know my Yiddish is not fluent it's just good enough that I don't sing without understanding what I'm saying anything anymore Mm -hmm. I mean this is this is a milestone in your uh, Yiddish cultural literacy that just takes a really long time it just yeah because there's so many elements it takes a really long time and because there's so much 
retraining and and training for the first time that we need to do for ourselves. What is your sex assigned at birth? And what have the courts ruled about you lately? How you doing? Well, I don't, I don't really know and I can't see you, but here's a guess that at least some of you at some part in, inside might feel a little bit like this. That just, just to quote this Yiddish song that I really love. Okay. My fire is burning low with a coal, cold, pale fury. And at home I find sadness and in the streets also sadness. Yeah, it's honestly heartbreaking how many laughs that gets. And I think it's really good. <laughs> okay, just to continue. Are you feeling like the wind is hostile and it's furiously going about ripping us down while growing stronger and stronger? And then sometimes weaker and you're like, where is it? Tunkel brent a fire, a kalten sornblas, an imit afen heisel. An image after God. So let's talk about those forms and where you're finding your own voice in them. I was going to ask, Yiddish song and lyrics have been a part of your music, but then also the instrumental stuff and finding repertoire. You know, what have been some successes? What are some challenges? And then I think that goes hand in hand with like creating repertoire, which you've done both inside of existing repertoire, you know, or by writing, you know, wholesale new stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Yiddish repertoire. I mean, so I started studying Yiddish language when I had this job for several years working in Hasidic Williamsburg with these elders. And I think we talk about Jeffrey Chandler's post-vernacularism concept that like a lot of the Yiddish music that we perform for each other is in a in his own post-vernacular phase. Like it's there's something performative about the Yiddishness of it. It's not necessarily mm. that we expect each other to understand each other when we talk. Yeah, okay, I gotcha. And this was, like, my first experience of Yiddish that was not that at all. Like, when I would sing Yiddish songs, like, the jokes came through immediately and the feeling came through immediately. And that was so transformative for me. And I'm so, so grateful to have that experience and really humbled to get to spend time with those elders. Yeah. And how much they taught me just by, like, listening, just by being willing to listen to me, like, stumble through these songs for a while. Can you uh, paint more of a, like, a picture of what one of these events or what one of these things would, would look like? What was what would happen? One of these nights? I'm oh, assuming, yeah. What was this thing? Oh, my God, Dan. Okay, so... Like, and when? Uh, for the three years before the pandemic, I would say. So, like, what was that? Like, 17 to 20 or something? Okay. I would bike down to Hayward Street in Williamsburg. And, like, three blocks before I got into Hasidic Williamsburg, I would, like, put on a skirt over my Adidas track pants, and I would tear off the track pants, and I would, like, bike the rest of the way there. And then I would go in this, like, weird drag into this, like, city-funded elder center that was in Hasidic Williamsburg, so everyone there was Satmar. And it was only women, and the time slot before I would get there in midday was an exercise class so like younger women came and they took off their wigs and they piled them in one corner of the room and they put on different head coverings and they like ran around to like Israeli pop music 
And um, as I was waiting for them to finish, I would like set up a little speaker system and um, I would take out my accordion, um, except for, except that, <laughs> except that the funding for this program was only available during like three months of the year that also included the Omer. So I had to just sing a cappella for a lot of that time. And then when the exercise class would end, I would gather like 20 great grandmothers from Hungary around a table and and they would um, stop playing bingo and they would come and I would say like, what do you want to sing? And at the beginning of my programming, I was just like absolutely desperate to figure out what repertoire we might have in common. And I talked to, you know, everybody, uh, Josh Walecki and Jenny Romaine gave me, gave me some like ideas of things to try. And one thing that Josh Walecki was really, really right about is that they loved Kbirtig. They were just mm. like the, this like sentiment, this like um, nostalgic sentimentality with these beautiful melodies. Like it was, they, they would just like clutch their hearts. But also like brutal lyrics. Let's just be honest. Kbirtig is not playing around. Not playing around like I don't really pl- I don't perform that material in other places because it's too intense for me <laughs> it's too intense <laughs> like, <laughs> it's too intense but they were like they were all about it and that's what I'm saying Asya explained to me like t- I read her dissertation and and also like through talking to her a little bit she explained to me that their generation is sort of allowed to sing this pre-war Jewish repertoire that wasn't because composed by Hasidim but they're like kids and mm-hmm. grandkids aren't really. Okay. So they like love Boyfin Prepichik and their like great grandchildren came in once and performed it for them. But they mm. would, they, it's like an old people song. They like wouldn't sing it at their, like yeah, for them. And then I also learned like a bunch of Yom Tov Erlich. And like Yom Tov Erlich like played all of their daughter's chasimahs. <laughs> Ugh, that just goes back to like how like tight, tight this, all this stuff is. Even, even as like, you know, people like Jenny and hopefully us, we're just like not only flinging the gates wide open and holding them open, we're also getting behind people and trying to shove them through the gates. We're, it's still like you get through the gates and you're like, whoa, this is like a knot, a thorny knots of inter interconnectedness. You know, we're not, it's, it's, that is, that's beautiful. So intense, Dan. And, you know, I was so, it was so exciting to be in there and I felt like I was so privileged that I was like, oh my God, you know, I would love to make some recordings. And I thought they would definitely say no. But they were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. There's just one thing. You can never let a man listen to them, obviously. Mm-hmm, and I just mm-hmm, remember being mm-hmm. like, what am, I, what am I doing here? I was like, what is a man? Like, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, that's like, it's just, I just, it just creates this, uh, these visuals of, like, explosions. You know, <laughs> it's just like everything. It's like, you know, yeah. it's like, you're like, you're like, every time you try to grab something, it just, like, explodes. Yeah. And like flings you off into 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 a void of whatever. Exactly. I would just be like, I can't be here. But then I was like, but I love being here in this place where like, like just women are just singing and everyone is just having a good time. And you've accepted me despite the fact that I have no hair and I'm like clearly totally weird. The first year, the first year, like nobody talked to me about anything except their Holocaust survival stories. Yeah, of course. And the second year, everybody tried to set me up with their like grandson's friend. Oh my god! And then the third year, they like stopped, and they were like, "weren't they? They like? Oh. They were just like, they were like, oh yeah, you're Freilich, they're you're happy.'" I was like, "Yeah." They they got yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> they 
yeah, they were like, yeah, we're just, we're, we're chilling now. We have a rhythm. But it took, it took years. And yeah, it was really, really wild. And then like when I started, again, when I started taking testosterone, I just like absolutely ghosted because I had no way of having that conversation. And I had no way of right. having the conversation. Like, am I allowed to listen to those recordings now? You know, the, there was very special and privileged spaces that I was a part of, including like, did you know that there's an Orthodox women's conference, prayer conference call, and that on Friday mornings, Fiki Ehrlich, Yom Tov Ehrlich's daughter, sings one of her dad's songs? Because mm. uh, I, I kept being like, are there places where women are performing? You know, And finally somebody told me about the conference call. Like, so special. Yeah, no. It's so special. You know, I mean, this is, you know, hi- hidden worlds within hidden worlds. Yeah. And, you know, I think, like, in our little subset of the world, we're, I was talking to Jenny about this, like, we're trying to, like, prefigure the world, the Jewish world we want to see, where the connections, the fluidity between different parts of Jewish culture are there, where we can talk to each other and we can play with each other and we, we're all, like, existing in these worlds together but it's it requires some actual border crossing to make that happen it's very transgressive to be a klezmer musician you know i think that the history of our of being an actual klezmer musician in the way that it used to mean as according to someone like zev feldman in his book it's like you have to be conversant basically in every side of jewish music and secular music you know i remember kurt bjerling it was like a joke. It was sort of a joke, but he was like, "Well, I'm not a klezmer, real klezmer musician, because I only play this Ashkenazi Jewish music." Right. Like you, New York types, you know, doing all this, you know, all these different styles of music. Like you're the real, you're more like the real klezmer musicians. But I think, I mean, one of the things that's been so shocking to me is, and this kind of goes like when you're taught when you say these things about the hang with the Satmar folks, you know, like, "Oh, on the Omer, I didn't play," or like. Oh, uh, you know, I learned all these Yom Tov Ehrlich songs. And it's amazing how we can kind of take for granted the level of cultural literacy and fluidity that we are able to express and do. Whereas, like, I didn't know anything about the Omer growing up. and We went to synagogue a lot. Yeah. You know? And it's like, yes, those folks are orienting every day of their life around these practices. Whereas, like, you know, we don't necessarily do that. But somehow... In our study of this music and and our immersion in the culture around it, we gain the ability to sort of cross that boundary in a way where we don't feel like outsiders to them. Yeah. You know, and it's it's an incredible thing. And for me, it seems like the potential of whatever it is that causes that to happen that and, and could it be. So a bigger part of like all of music, all of the way things work is like so enormous because that's what something that's really needed right now. You know, maybe it's diasporism, maybe it's doikite, maybe it's something like that kind of are like these terms that kind of come close to explaining it. But I mean, first of all, Yiddish music is a very liminal music. It exists at the intersection of a lot of musical cultures and it comes from diasporic people. It's just a really wild space where so many like evolution can happen very quickly you know assimilation but not in the necessarily in the bad sense can happen very quickly it's really a wild thing it's so wild and i i think there's something special about being a musician in terms of being paid to be comfortable in many spaces yes and like 
I have many different sides of my musical life and in one, like I have my own perspective and identity and in one I don't or like, right. and I, I'm like really value both of those a lot. I was thinking about that today. I was like, wow, would you have ever considered you, Ira Temple, ever considered or like imagined that you would have this off-Broadway freelance career no. you know <laughs> no where which is what i one of the one of the places where i'm assuming you're talking about when you say your own perspective is not relevant yeah you know and, and, okay i'm overstating it because of course you still have a voice and you have a background and certain sure. things come sure. to you and you sound different but, than but other people you're but your, your job you is mean, to though. yeah your job is to orchestrate for something else and i think yeah. that's really valuable and i actually love doing musical work like that that's like yeah. you know like that's like yeah never when I like was like oh my god I'm gonna find authentic Jewish music at Close Canada and I'm gonna learn how to play it I was not like I'll go play Fiddler on the Roof like it's so funny it's it continues to be hilarious and like I love it I just really enjoyed that experience so like more than I can possibly describe but that's like what happens right it's like you're playing the deepest expression of the most mysterious and esoteric Jewish Ashkenazi Jewish music, klezmer music that you can find and using it for all sorts of purposes. And somehow, not only does that set you up to, it also prepares you to play in a Yiddish production of Fiddler on the Roof. It's 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 mind blowing. Yeah, it is. And you know who you know the Satmar also liked uh, Fiddler on the Roof, I have to say. I would imagine they would. It's a univ- you know, it's a universal story that someone everyone can find themselves in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's cool to be able to, to like be open to different modes of expression. I'm in this yeah. Facebook group, group called God Save Us From Your Opinion, a place for serious discussion of Judaism. <laughs> it's, some, it's sometimes serious and it's sometimes not serious, but it's an interesting group because it has the rule that you have to respect the frame of reference of the poster. So you mm. say your frame of reference. So you're like, can I eat bugs in my lettuce? Frame of reference, I'm Orthodox. Or you're like, what prayer can I say for this name change for my trans kid? Frame of reference, I'm Reform. And you can't say to the Reform person, like, well, I'm Orthodox and we don't do that. And you can't say to the Orthodox right. person, like, don't worry about the bugs in your lettuce. And, like, there's very few Jewish spaces like that. Because once it's about, like, belief and practice, it becomes much, much harder to be open and like, you know, musicians, not to say that musicians don't like think that there's a right way to, to do things or are uh, have yeah. a particular aesthetic and think that other aesthetics are wrong, like sort of fundamentally at some level. But we're not like, oh, yeah, like God will punish you, you know. I think it's just there's the the brutality of making a living as a musician just sort of most people just give up on keeping that solid. And I mean, <laughs> look at the people who play in all the insider bands, like in the Hasidic world. It's just a beautiful cross section yeah. of New York musicians. I remember being on the the one of the few big gigs I did at that. The cat who knew all the tunes was an Irish dude. And he played, you know, he's he's probably played more Jewish music than I have, if you want to look at it that way. But it's really interesting. You know, and it's just some of that's about the specialness of New York City and some of it's some of it's about the specialness of like you know with Jews we're kind of like well we got to get it done you know it's like you're gonna you got to have a giant band for your sim class so we'll just hire whoever's gonna make it you know it's not like oh yeah it's it's different than other cultures it's it's like the, there is a sort of fundamental 
door is open, gate is open. You might have to play with our rules if you come through the gate, but you can come in. I'm sure I it's don't not. Know. I think everybody. As, I'm sure. I mean, we've also played. I mean, we've played like German gigs together. I don't know. You know, it's like there's other. Yeah. There's other. There's like I think everybody does that, but I think sometimes people are surprised when Hasidic Jews hire non-Jews because they think that they yeah. should have a more like culturally fetishistic vibe on it. But it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that much. And even like, you know, between the Hasidic groups, they, they like are interested in each other's nagunim and they like that. I mean, I have to say that was something that was not available to me as a kid is the idea that I could be involved in Hasidic culture, which was, I mean, that. I didn't even really know it was existed. No, I wasn't taught that there were like, songs connected with certain rabbis that had spiritual value or that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure not. No, I think about that. That's, you know, you say spiritual value. And then, I mean, the concept of Nagunim is like, at least in my Jewish, in the, in the, in the religious Jewish spaces that I know about, it's so much more ubiquitous than it ever was before. It's, it's growing and a lot. It's, yeah, it's really wild. So, you know, let's broaden out from this Ashkenazi lens that we've been talking about in this world, because you've also done a lot of work, mostly with Laura Elkislasi, exploring some other sides of this whole Jewish music diaspora, right? Yeah, wow. I mean, I think because of working with J. Fredge and through Purim, there was this big demand in this group of Jews to have culture that was more expressive of a multiplicity of Jewish sources. And so I started, because I was doing music direction for Purim and for J. Fredge, like for their street protests and their award ceremonies and stuff like that, I was like, yeah, like what does that culture look like in New York City? And, you know, we have some like heavy hitters here, like Galit Dardashti lives outside the city. And, and I started going to meetings of the Andalus Ensemble led by Sam Torsman Thomas mm-hmm. and met all these people there. They were like singing in French and Arabic and Hebrew, all these amazing songs of North Africa. And actually at some point we had like a all women version of that ensemble go perform in the summer job that I had. Cause for one month a year after the Omer was over, I would put together like one or two lunchtime concerts a week for them. So I think that's when I started working with Laura and I just met Laura at a time when she was going through this intense personal and musical development, trying to find political community and artistic community around this music that her parents listened to when she was growing up that she wanted to explore her relationship to. And I was kind of like, yeah, like, all these themes are are really familiar to me. And so we started working together, me producing and thinking about how to do arrangements and how to hire people and how to learn a bunch. And then the pandemic happened and we we did a lot of like Zoom study with of like um, Andalusian Allah and like classical music and some of the sources of that music. And I think it was really cool for us to work together because she had a lot of drive to learn And I felt like my time in this intense Ashkenazi immersion blender gave me a lot of toolkits about what were the ways that you could and should learn, even though the material was really unfamiliar to me. 
And that has been like a really broadening and exciting experience for me. I sort of knew, but I didn't quite realize how recent all this was and how we sort of had a version of this conversation rolling for the last four yeah. years. And because of this project that I did in 2019, where I was trying to sort of tackle that stuff kind of from the same perspective in which I was working at leading a Simcha band, the community band at Colt Sedek Synagogue, and I had been somehow contracted to do music at a large progressive Jewish organization's national member meeting in 2017, I think. And they were like, we want stuff from all over. And it was great because I, I worked with George Mordecai, who's a amazing, great singer who comes from an Iraqi tradition. And uh, I think he's back in Australia now, but he gave me some songs. I really, I really had a mix. I had all the mix, but because all the kids and by kids, I mean like the young people who were playing, including myself, rolled in with like band instruments. Everybody just assumed it was all klezmer, even though I was like, and I was like, no. So it just, it really was like, I mean, it was eye-opening in the one way. And then it was really eye-opening in the other way, in the sense of like, it was eye-opening to learn about all this music and see the connections and the differences between the kind of Jewish music that I feel, you know, ownership of, or even responsible for in some way. And then what these folks who I'm actually, I would guess there was some overlap between the people that you're talking about, the people I'm talking about in terms of actual people, like what are they actually looking for? It's an interesting thing. Yeah. It's like an interesting moment because the question about ethnic diversity within the Jewish community kind of got folded into a conversation about racial identity in the U S at large. That's correct. A hundred percent. And there are like huge implications of that for like, grant funding and how people think about racial identity and uh-huh. and like like I really resonate with that question about like the question is like what are people looking for when they say diversity and you know I've like had a lot of conversation with Laura talking about being frustrated with like many experiences being invited to a space to perform only to find that the feeling in the space during the performance is one of like increased alienation because if everybody knows all the Ashkenazi tunes and then nobody knows her tunes or, or yeah. like the small Sephardi group that comes to hear her 
doesn't know the nusach of the prayers that she's leading. And meanwhile, the huge group of Ashkenazim around them are like singing loudly their tunes. Does that enhance the feeling that they're in, that yeah. that there's like inclusion? And it's like, yeah, it's diversity for whom? And you know, like talking to Laura, I really have come around to to seeing that what really works is creating caucus space and creating creating a track for people who want to study with teachers from traditions that resonate for them and making sure that there's like just support and also like grants for community members to come out to do that. But the goal here isn't just like an addition of another spice for the Ashkenazi audience. That's correct. But yeah, like I love what you said about what diversity actually requires sort of on a material level. It requires basically spending whatever extra money you need to to make the stuff that is marginalized and inaccessible sort of upfront and center and accessible both in terms of giving people opportunities to perform it but also giving people opportunities to go learn about it if they want to and you know you're just it's just restorative you know it's like you're saying well we're giving this grant for this thing what about this thing well it's like you can go get that thing without a grant it's around you know we need we need to make sure that this stuff is around enough and that requires you know, special spending, for example. But then there's the other side of it. Like you said, this is not just about adding another spice. The thing that's really interesting, and we've talked about this before, is our respective audiences, is that, like, the J. Fridge audience is, like, I mean, there's a lot of klezmer around in New York, and there's a lot of good klezmer around in New York, and people have had their relationship to klezmer and its offshoots either in the political track you know, with somebody like Jenny working directly with Jay Fridge or on sort of just the musical track of like the soundtrack of part of Jewish New York. And in Philadelphia, I have this sort of I think in a way I have it easier because the klezmer is almost as unfamiliar as like the stuff that I do when I really bring it is almost as unfamiliar as anything else from a different tradition I bring. So, for example, Laura was came down to Colt Sedek for Hanukkah and we did a couple songs and I felt like it was so easy to just meet Laura and then also this other person who performed a song where they were at and say, like, here's what we can provide. You know, I can get you someone with a Darbuka and, you know, I mean, it's also I have a I have a community band. So I can sort of say here are the limits of what we can achieve. But then it works, too. And I think that goes back to what you were saying about something that's really beautiful about our Ashkenazi training, about our klezmer world, Yiddish land way of claiming and reclaiming tradition and history and sound and practice it sets us up really well for that level for being approaching this other stuff in a really kind of like open-eyed and respectful way or at least i'd like to think i mean we would hope you know and it's like so hard to see our blind spots and the ways that we like normalize our own community standards and you know I think the thing that I'm always trying to balance in doing that work is being like okay on the one hand like it's really important for me to hold that like my work of of like reclaiming it as culture is like a work against Christian and European cultural hegemony that was like enforced through generations and like assimilation is violence that means that it would be much easier to sort of invisibilize these traditions, which for me feel like they're keeping me alive. And like, I feel that my cultural work is activist work. And I mean, in some ways, you know, like what you're saying, like we do all this work to keep this culture alive. And we understand that it's not, we don't feel that it's something that is just like dominant and hegemonic because we don't actually feel that our Jewish institutions super support the existence of klezmer. And we don't, it doesn't feel like the dominant 
aesthetic culture of our institutions. It doesn't feel like super supported by the Jewish community. We, we feel like underdogs going into it. Yeah. And at the same time, when we bring that energy into like Mizrahi and Sephardi spaces, it doesn't always read because it's complex. Because it's like, in some ways, because Yiddish is a big language of Chabad, which has made big inroads into Mizrahi communities in France. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because of like the way that there's ingrained ignorance about other types of Jews in Jewish spaces, because like Yiddish literally means Jewish. And so, so, so many people just think that, and especially in the U.S., like not so much in France, but in the U.S., like just think that Ashkenazi Jews are the norm and that other Jews are the exception and they just think that way. And then they extend that into like the reaches of Jewish history and just has like these huge implications. I think like it is really important to be careful about yes. our assumptions about the way that people might relate to Yiddish culture. And that's meant over the time weathering various slights and negative things that people might say about Yiddish or about their feelings about upon hearing Yiddish. Like, it's very hard for me sometimes to hear people talk about how they... I Like, I've heard various, like, Mizrahi and Sephardi activists over time talk about entering a space and hearing Yiddish and just feeling, like, so upset. And just understanding that that's not about me, you know, and that it, it just... It, it's just about there is an unmet need for that person. A huge unmet need for that person. And if anything, I think that, you know, you talk about assimilation. It's been two steps backward and zero steps forward for quite, quite a long time, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, like you said earlier, this stuff gets wrapped up in the conversation about race in the U.S. and I guess abroad. And, and I mean... We're all given so little information and then so few healthy ways to process the little information that we're given with all this stuff. And I think one of the things that I always felt like we in our little klezmer world is like, I, I do think, I think it's it's really hard to both be really proud and really humble at the same time. Yeah. One of my favorite examples of this was the great accordionist, Bulgarian accordionist, Peter Ralchev, yeah. who I used to play in this group with. And he was he was one of the least humble people about his own ability that I've ever met. Fair. And to be fair, I think he's got like a really easy claim of being the top accordionist on the planet. Like he could just say that and I, I wouldn't really want to argue with it, but he's one of the top for sure. And he could be that confident and just be really sweet. We co-taught an ensemble at Yiddish Summer Weimar and I was really young and he was like, we should try this thing. And then just play something that I couldn't grasp musically whatsoever. And he didn't even bother to bring me along with him. He just kind of made space for me and then made space for him at the same time. It was kind of brilliant. It was not humble, but it was totally sweet and welcoming at the same time. And I think that this is like something that I would love to figure out how to balance that in a situation. You know, I'm, try I'm trying to figure out how to balance that in my life, whether it was this project at the Kimmel Center where I worked with uh, Yosef Goldman and we kind of grappled some, you know, and there was times when I was writing this music and I was like, it's actually important for me to take a surface level attack at these other sounds that I'm not, at, because that's being really honest with where I am and see if I can make great music. And it's still related to the music that's out there. And then there's other times when I just really had to let it go and just say, like, I can't actually go to this thing that I want but I can do something that maybe like musically tries to leave room for someone to say improvise in a different style. 
than the one that I'm doing, you know, and I think that there's some, it's, it's a combination of all these things we've been talking about. It's the combination of like the, the fundamental liminality of Ashkenazi Jewish music, the, the sort of like ability to mix artistic and let's say like professional skill sets that comes from being like in, in this case, like East coast cosmopolitan musicians, or maybe even, you know, classic cosmopolitan klezmer musicians there's like seeds there that we can grow. And, and so I'm hoping, you know, I think you've had some success. I, I feel successful. I'd love to get, get over my skis a little bit to the point that someone get, you know, like claps back a little bit. Cause that would mean that I'm getting somewhere, but uh, you know, there's, that was a lot of metaphors. It's, it's just an inch. I, I am a man of a lot of metaphors <laughs> and like, you know, now that I feel like on the front end in a leadership role with this Yiddish music, I'm like, Man, we just really have a lot to offer, and we are comfortable offering it. Because I've I've had some other experiences in other cultures where they sure have a lot to offer, but you know, for a lot of really really good reasons, they're not interested in offering it to us. But we're really interested. We're like, come and get it, please. Yeah. And maybe that's something that needs questioning too. But you know, no, I love it. I love it, and I I know that you talk about like klezmer ears about just being able to listen to nuance in a way where you can be really intentional about how you approach to many different types of music. And I was yeah. thinking about that recently. I was having a conversation with Alem Basaldi and Yay, this, this group that I play with, with Laura sort of has two iterations sort of based on like various factors. And one, one iteration is like all the players in the group are coming to their own musics that they were divorced from for various reasons. So it's like me and Alem who like, grew up studying classical music in Turkey and then came to Turkish music later, came came to Turkish folk music later, and is just such a stunning practitioner of so many types of music, plays Greek and Jewish and, like, Arab, Arabic and, like, both Levantine and North African and, you know, all this different stuff. And Yoni Batat, who, like, is a great klezmer player and uh, was playing in, like, the... Israeli Sephardic orchestras and like is doing so much work on his family's Iraqi music and um, then like Zoe Gagano on bass but who can just do anything weirdly yeah. amazingly great bass yeah and and then there's this version of the band that plays with Laura that's like me and then all the other musicians are from North Africa oh wow and those are really different versions of the band for me personally to play in because in the first oh I bet <laughs> yeah you know, in like for for like every reason, for language reasons, for musical language reasons, and I in in Paris we were playing in that version of the band, except that also with Elam, mm. and I, we were talking about musical accent. You know, and I was like, you know, like what are your goals with Turkish music? And she said, you know, you know, I'll never have the, the accent exactly, like like spe- like speaking. We were talking about just being from multiple places and. That's experience of a lot of people on earth, you know, just a, it's a really true experience. And I think that it has actually a lot of musical value, even though a lot of the musical traditions that we value have like ownership from the center and not necessarily from the margins. And the ownership from the center is like the purest expression is if you don't have an accent and you're, you're in the deepest lineage from the oldest thing. And obviously you're a man. Unless you're a singer. Yeah, right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah. Unless you're a singer. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, already out of the gate, that whole way of looking at things uh, starts to 
look less valuable once you start adding those criteria in. Yeah. You know, we talk about how there really was so much more continuity in our music than there was loss. And the loss overwhelmed the continuity. And I guess fair enough. You know, I've I I used to think more about the loss and now I think more about the continuity. And that's just but we can say that for the most part, that kind of a center doesn't actually really exist, which means there's more possibility for the margins to sort of for it for entirely to represent this other way of these other ways of doing things. And there's something really remarkable about that. There's something really, there's something really fun about it, you know, too. No, it, and it is, it is really fun. And it's also, I don't know. I kind of started crying in rehearsal the other day with, you know, there's this amazing oud player, Rashid Hollyhall, and we were playing this Jewish North African song, Ahlam Wasahlan, by this piano player, Maurice Medioni, and composer, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. And you know. I made an arrangement of this song for Laura, like in the way that I make transcriptions of classical tunes. Like I listened to it, then I wrote down what I heard. But Rashid was like, oh no, we can't, we play it like this. And he meant like, in Morocco, people just play that song all the time. And they play it in a different way. And just, I like had this gasping moment of just like, just intense desire, (laughs) you know? Like the feeling that that was available for this Mm. Just like the recirculation of the music into a place. I mean, I don't know. Like I hear you. I wanted no, I just right. want to experience there, there the not, continuity. Nothing replaces that. But I just I just had this moment of like having of like of like gasping. Now it doesn't actually mean that there isn't Jewish community cultural loss from that place because yeah, the population was displaced. Like that history has shifted and in some ways to be in that band not only the musical experience where I'm just like a completely different musician and I have a totally different role when the players are North African and I'm like making a different kind of space and I'm operating with a different kind of authority and humility. Uh, It's very different, but also the, like the political activity that's happening in the band is really different. It's like one, you can have a band of sort of, of reclaimers or you can kind of have a band where within the band, this like, history is being reconfigured and these people are like coming together. And yeah. I don't know what the, I don't, I don't hundred percent know what the audience experiences of that. Um, but that's, mm. my head is really there right now. Cause I just got back from Paris and, and it was really, yeah. it was really deep. It was really deep to hear the audience response. And it, it was like going, it's like, it was more like being in summer Williams. We're going to just like playing the songs and people having an immediate response instead of like, there's a way to do that set in the U.S. where you're explaining to people what they are and why they're important. Oh, yeah. Both are great ways to have a concert, but it was very beautiful to have this thing. That's so great. So I, we talked about this a lot. If you want to have the Klezmer version of it, you got to come down and hang out with me and Susan and her nephew, Brad. Fuck yeah. We've been getting together. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and Brad has, the, I mean, the thing, it's like the family groove, man. They have it. They have it. It's just in there. They're, you know, it's because Elaine was like, you're going to sit down and learn the beat, you know, wow. whether you like it or not. And it's like, it's like, we've just been playing. And, and it's just, you go, you go play a Freilach, play a Hasselow. That's it. That's basically as far as it goes. And, you know, it's not like, should we do it this way? Should we do it yeah. this way? There's just, there's the way you yep. do it. And it's great. It's so, and that's so rare. And it's so yep. rare. 
and it's really beautiful. And so that's, you know, that in a way there's a little bit of an extra Philly attitude to it too that makes it even more fun for me. Yes. But yeah. Wow, I love that so much. Oh, me too. I love that so much. Wow. Come on down. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think it's probably uh, getting close to wrap up time. So why don't I would love to hear about this project you have coming up in Krakow and just tell or any other projects that you're working on that's coming up there that you want to let people know about. Well, okay. I'm going to be in Krakow with artist Julie Weitz, who's like a painter and clown and is convening this little daily theater, street theater production around the um, Rope Nachman story of the Seven Beggars. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but it's a great one. It's, I would say, like the Lord of the Rings of Hasidic tales. It goes to a lot of places. <laughs> it goes to a lot of places, and it has a lot of, but like Jewish style, so it has a, like a lot of extended metaphor in it, spiritual metaphor in it. But mm-hmm. I would say like these kids who are exiled from this kingdom that has been warred against meet seven beggars over the course of their travels. Each has a problem with a different body part. And then later they invite them to their wedding and they, the beggars explain how each of the things that seem to be wrong with them is like a gift because they see beyond seeing or hear beyond hearing or it's very, very beautiful tale. And it's also interesting to explore like a story about gifts and disfigurement in Poland, I've ne- which is a place that I've never been to, and to perform being Jewish on the street. I don't know. I mean, it's in some ways I feel like funny talking about this on a podcast because I'm just aware that of like, it feels almost trite to have this experience of like going back to Europe and having the, exper- the uncomfortable experience of being a Jew. I'm just like, yeah. But we're also musicians, so we're also there's a whole part of us that's like, well, yeah, I'm just gonna go do it. Yes, you know, just do the gig. You know, but but in the most in the most powerful and informed way possible, not shut down, not tuned out or disassociating. You just go there and do the gig. And I will say, having been a veteran, if I can say that, of the Krakow Festival myself, it's it's a good time. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm really looking forward to it, and Muriel Rothman Zecher is doing writing for it, and Anna Lublina is doing chore- choreography, and those are artists who I really respect a lot. And I'm it's it's been a while since I worked on like a team where we were doing devising together, and so I also have to do movement and writing and all that stuff. So that's that's fun. I'm enjoying it. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, and especially because I'm yeah I'm like trying to be in a more creatively open space, looking to record an album this year of some new stuff that I've written in English and in doing some translations from Yiddish and recombining Yiddish texts in with English in new ways. And basically like doing an album where I just am exploring all these different ways to have translation and communication between English and Yiddish. Just like trying a bunch of methodologies. Well, you've already had a lot of success with that, and so that's gonna. I think that's gonna be great too. I think a lot is maybe an overstatement, this. but I've had sort of. I like what you've phase. done. Yeah, 
Things that I've made have like spread further than I would have imagined. They certainly have. So I'm sort of like interested to see what happens if I put a little more push behind that. And and that's yeah, that's, that's, awesome. that's 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 what I'm working on right now. And we had like a debut show in Baltimore that was really fun and people were like, Can you send me the words to your queer version of like trying to write like just like a queer wedding song and yeah yeah i think i gotta i just gotta make a product out of it it's time yeah that's great well we only scratch some of the surfaces of you know our our ongoing conversations here and we definitely have to save for another time some of the really wild experiences you and i have shared already related to all of these topics that kind of keep rolling around in our heads in between us. But yeah, thanks Ira. I am so glad that we get to keep having these conversations and then bring other people in on them. Wow. Yeah. Dan, it's just been a pleasure to talk to you over the years and I really valued your thoughts and ear and yeah, I am so honored, honored to do this with you. It's my, the honors mine as well. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Radiant Others podcast. Be sure to keep up with all of Ira's work and check out Sibylla. Radiant Others is produced by Dan Blacksburg and me, Bela Unger. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiantothers and give what you can to help us continue to release episodes regularly. We'll be back in two weeks for another interview with a very exciting guest from the Klezmer music world, so stay tuned. Until then, I hope everyone is doing well and have a good Shabbos. The world it wore right through me. Hot sich mir die Schichtseries made way for endless beauty. Tanz, tanz an Kegenier und ich an Kegenier. Dance with me till the party's over, the Fagelas are here. Dancing, they can really throw down. Everyone's in florals with amazing neo pronouns. Tanz, tanz, an Kegelier, und ich an Kegelier. Ich will nem der Maiden und die will nem der Schier. In one circle, all the black clad people on the derrick. Another, everyone suspicious of a nationalist project. Tanz, tanz, an Kegelier, und ich an Kegelier. Ich will them, und die wird's nehmen zu schwer. Babes in their new custom suits and butches in their vests. Take away the straight and narrow and give me all the rest. Tanz, tanz, an Kegelier, und ich an Thank you.
middle of the dance floor is a place for the Shekhinah. All the queers who came before and a queerness yet unseen. Tan, stan, stan, keg, me. 